The Russians down our drone. Can we define woke? And Stanford law disgraces itself. We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Donor Trust. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said Anything. So, MBD, were you checking up on your survivor supplies stocked in your basement after the Russians buzzed and took down this U.S. drone in international waters? No, only only after I started reading uh, conservative media on it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) No, I mean... um, Russia and the United States have been uh, in 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 these this sort of position before, where Russians aggressively buzz uh, our planes or our drones as they fly near, get anywhere near Russian territory, uh, even if they're in international uh, airspace. Uh, and something like this was probably bound to happen, um, uh, and. It did, and it looks like cooler heads are prevailing. Uh, I was, you know, worried a decade ago when Russia intervened in Syria while we were intervening in Syria, and we both were using air power. Uh, at the time, Russia and the United States actually, despite having terrible diplomatic relations, established very effective military-to-military communication and were able to avoid an incident like this. Um that's broken down now in the Black Sea. Um, you know, I expect there's just going to be harsh statements and, you know, the White House summoned the, the Russian ambassador and, you know, gave him the official dressing down. Um, and I think that'll be about it. But I don't think uh, anyone, least of all the Biden administration, wants to dramatically escalate um based on one down Reaper drone, I I have a feeling we'll do a little show of force where we tell the Russians, Hey, we're going to fly this close to your airspace. We're going to accompany a drone with a couple of fighter jets. And if you get X close to us, we will fire back on you. Uh, And then we'll do that. And they won't get that close to us. And that'll be it. Yeah. Maddie, I'm a, I'm a dove on the Reaper drone. There is some of the language a little too weak. There is someone, I don't know, was a Pentagon official or someone's calling it inappropriate, which is like the, the weakest possible word you can apply to it. So, you know, we, we should sternly re- rebuke uh, the Russians. Otherwise, this, this is not the main event. And, um, you know, I think what we should be doing is just continuing to aid uh, Ukraine. That, that's the, that's the, the main uh, line of uh, battle here and um, not, not uh, do anything to get embroiled in an air war over the Black Sea with the, the Russians. Yeah, so the other uh, term, the finger-wagging rhetoric, was unprofessional, which, mm-hmm, yeah. which made, me laugh, <laughs> made me laugh, like, do you know who you're dealing with? <laughs> like, these guys aren't renowned for their professionalism. Um, but yeah, no, you're exactly right. I think, you know, the, the thing that makes you most nervous when something like this happens is you think, okay, well, this is a piece of equipment, but uh, it's 
it's threatening in the sense that it's not just drones out there. Uh, fortunately, no American blood was shed this time, but uh, and and I'm sure if if there had been, there would have been a much tougher uh, response. But it's still it's still an escalatory act on on the part of Russia. I mean, the US has been flying drones over international waters. It, these are international waters for over a year, so it is uh, definitely something to keep an eye on, but also to keep in perspective. So, Charlie, continued discussion about the DeSantis Ukraine statement. We talked about it earlier in the week, but let's uh, dive in again. There's been a lot of commentary about it. So I guess my, my take on it, uh, a little more in the cold light of day here, is that substantively there's really – um, he's constraining himself in in no way, right? Uh, except for F-16s and long-range missiles, and he's against further entanglement, whatever uh, that means. So, kind of the substance doesn't entirely match the the mood music, which is you know goes way over in the anti-interventionist direction. So, I think for me, the the main risk to DeSantis here, you know, he's he's lining himself up with. Um, the uh, a sentiment in the Republican Party that's clearly growing and probably will continue to grow, which is a skepticism about our support for Ukraine, a sense that uh, we're, we're spending too much and it's too costly for us. But where I worry for DeSantis's sake is just the sense that he's overly calculating here, you know, because you look at past things he's he said uh, about Russia, foreign affairs in, in general, and this just doesn't line up at all. Now, I don't think it's, um, strictly speaking, inconsistent. You can square the circle, but the the need to do that should have been um, top of mind for whoever wrote this and, and vetted it, and um, it, it wasn't. So it's created this opening for Trump to say, look, look, you know, he just, whatever I say, he's just going to come over there and say say the same thing, no matter where, where he's been on things in the past. I think... It's possible to overinterpret this in both directions. As you say, you can note, as I have done on this podcast and in print, that he has not confined himself in any meaningful way. You can also assume that he is now an isolationist. I don't think either of those are supported by the text. There are, however, two lines in there that are objectionable, that you cannot parse or massage or bend. One is that this is a territorial dispute. It is not a territorial dispute. The reason that DeSantis has been accused of pandering to people who are too online is because that is a phrase that you see used by them. This notion. So, so Charlie, what, what would a, what would a territorial dispute be? I I, I don't know a lot of details about this, but you know, uh, Germans have claims to Alsace Lorraine, and the, the French have claims, and, and you have a territorial dispute. Uh, would that be a ter- more more of a territorial dispute, or what, what's legitimately a territorial dispute, and why is this different? The problem with answering that is that the weight of history immediately crushes you because territorial disputes, so-called, have been used often as prerequisites for aggression. The Sudetenland was a territorial dispute. Alsace-Lorraine is a territorial dispute that just happens to have been at the center of three conflicts since 1870. But there are territorial disputes that are less sullied by aggression. I mean, there are territorial disputes in American history, not just between the United States and Mexico, but between states. Mm -hmm. 
this is not a territorial dispute. There was nobody sitting there in 2016 saying, I wonder where Ukraine starts and ends. This was an invasion. This was an act of aggression. The Russians may have used all sorts of pretexts in order to get there, but to call this a territorial dispute really does damage and make meaningless the notion of territorial dispute. And that, in my view, is the first thing that he said that is unpausable and unacceptable. The second one that one can and must object to, depending on one's conception of this area, is that this conflict is not in the vital American interest. Now, that's not a matter of fact in either direction. But I think it is a problem for many people who are more interventionist. I think that what happens to Ukraine is in the American interest. I'm less sure about the word vital. I think that Taiwan is in the vital American interest, both militarily and economically. I think Ukraine is in our national interest. And insofar as the argument is that we need to make sure that Russia doesn't get away with what it's done in Ukraine in order to make sure that China is not encouraged to go into Taiwan. I suppose you could make the case that Ukraine is in our vital national interest, but that's still a little bit attenuated. You're, you're still creating a chain of dependency. So those two I have a real problem with, and those two I think are going to cause him the biggest headaches. The rest of it is not. And I will wait to see until I draw too many long-term conclusions from this, what DeSantis says when he is asked about this in more detail. He hasn't made a speech about this. He hasn't put out a paper. He hasn't written a book. He hasn't been involved in a debate. He hasn't asked or answered any hard questions. He wrote, or somebody wrote on his behalf, a statement for Tucker Carlson that was not great, that was mostly innocuous, that contained two sentences that may come back to hurt him. I will reserve judgment on the rest. So, MBD, were you doing somersaults of joy when you first read the statement? Yeah, I mean, I was thrilled. Um, I've, I've been hoping that Ron DeSantis would be on the more cautious side of our foreign policy debates. And, you know, we just didn't know he was, he's a governor. He's been focusing on domestic issues and that's been his job. That's been great. He, you know, there are indications, you know, he was tough on Iran as a congressman and he was, you know, a member of the Freedom Caucus. So it's not entirely sure what direction you'd be in, in 2020, in 2023, based on, on that from over a decade ago. Um, He's correct. Ukraine is not in a vital interest to the United States. I mean, that's the argument I've been making since 2014 or even earlier. Um, and it's why I still believe Russia will ultimately be the deciding power about what happens in this war. Uh, because it's uh, they view it as in their vital interest. Their, their public is committed to it. They are emptying their jails to... And... Uh, and mobilizing. That, that's how serious they are. And they're Emptying their no, I, I, I'm sorry, but like if, if Joe Biden turned around tomorrow and said, we're mobilizing the United States, there would, there would, we would politically disintegrate. Right. Um, no, no one in Rikers would be a volunteer. Me, me, no, I mean, 
America, American public opinion does not view this war as essential to them. So they are willing to let our foreign policy establishment just run it up on the national credit card with a professional army that you're not going to get drafted. You know, professional army, no one's in danger of getting drafted into it uh, in the background and letting the Ukrainians fight as our proxies. But if you ask them to, and we're already seeing American public opinion slide and balk just at the credit card uh, ring-ups for Ukraine. So we're not committed to that war as a population, as a nation, and that meaningfully constrains what America can achieve. Um, and so, so he's absolutely right. Uh, the same Quinnipiac poll that shows 48% of Republicans think we're doing too much and only 19% take the McConnell position that we're doing too little uh, shows that 66% of Americans view China as the number one threat. Only 22% view Russia as the number one threat. So I think he is aiming his, uh, his position where the growth is in the Republican Party in the next year or so. And, um, you know, I wish he didn't say territorial dispute because I think that opened him up to all sorts of just criticism, but, um, but I'm, I'm very pleased about it. And, um, you know, I wrote on the website today that, um, he shouldn't let people Reagan shame him. Uh, David French in the New York times today and, the Wall Street Journal earlier this week said, oh, Reagan would, would you know, be turning over in his grave. But when you look back in the history, um, Reagan was criticized constantly from his right for being too dovish, for being softer than Jimmy Carter, for, you know, talking a big game, but doing nothing to help solidarity in Poland, um, for endless symmetry, etc., um, you know, mm-hmm. neoconservatives and, and, and right-wing hawks disliked him. I mean, even Buckley's book on Reagan is like Buckley constantly expressing queasiness about Reagan's overtures to the Soviets. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was the main, the main line of criticism. And, and Reagan was soft on that stuff. At the end of the day, I mean, he would have eliminated nuclear weapons if he, if he could. Bill Russia yeah. wrote in National Review in 1985 when Reagan went to an arms control summit, this would never have happened if Ronald Reagan was still alive. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's- no, I, there are a bunch. I remember I was reading National Review and American Spectator in high school, and, and we declared that we'd lost the Cold War uh, when the INF Treaty was signed. <laughs> I think George George Will wrote a column to that to that right. effect. But but MBD, um, not not to extend this, but. You know, Reagan was um, cautious about um, you know using U.S. troops. The the exception, um, you know, Grenada, very small scale um, operation, obviously, and and Lebanon, which uh, resulted in a debacle. But the thing for me, though, is this doesn't involve U.S. troops. It's it's um, it's a proxy war, in the sense it's a, a good a good thing because we're we're not fighting. We have a proxy to do. The fighting, and I was I was on a radio show earlier this week, and someone was saying, "This isn't our fight." I was like, "Yeah, I know it's not, and we're not fighting. We're just supporting the people who are fighting." Right. I mean, um, but we are. <laughs> there are times when that's the right thing to do, and times when that's risky and dangerous. And um, you know, Reagan chose. You know, I. Eisenhower chose not to support the Hungarians. Uh, Johnson chose not to support 
Czechoslovakians in Prague in 68. Reagan chose not to do anything to support the Poles in 1981 uh, because the risks were seen as too high and too grave and the costs uh, too dangerous and uh, that the American people wouldn't ultimately put up with them. And um, and I think this, the same is true for Ukraine, that it's going to be a terrible thing to bring Ukraine on as a dependent of the West long term. Uh, terribly costly, corruptive, and with little benefit. So, um, I, and that doesn't mean I don't, I, I don't, I don't begrudge Ukrainian nationalists their fight. I, I admire it. Um, but this is not the first time that Americans have fallen in love with another, uh, another country's nationalism. Charlie Cook, ask a question to you. The Ukraine statement will work out for Ron DeSantis in the long term, yes or no? I'm just glad that Michael is now against falling in love with another country's nationalism. (laughs) (laughs) I read your book. (laughs) I think that it will work out, but not necessarily because DeSantis will be proven right, but because the statement was sufficiently vague, events move sufficiently quickly and Americans care insufficiently about foreign policy for this to be a minor question within the pending primaries. Maddie Kearns? Uh, I think it could backfire, actually. I think that this, again, just plays into the idea that he's sort of a a poor man's Trump. And uh, whereas he's pretty glib in his statement, he mentions, you know, peace should be the objective. Well, no kidding. Uh, you know, he doesn't really explain how to get there, whereas Trump, Trump's been talking about uh, doing a dirty deal. Trump's been saying Europe should pay more. Uh, I, I think this will be something that Trump will, will use as ammunition against DeSantis. MBD? Um, I think it's going to work out for him. I mean, it might have been a little early to put the uh, the movement and uh, the think tanks and everyone into such a panic um, for Ron when so many are still in, hoping that he's their their bridge back into power. Um, but I think I think it's going to work out for him because I think this is w- actually where Republican voters are. So I'd say yes that this positioning on Ukraine will work out for him because as MBD, points out this is the drift of Republican opinion, but I'll put the asterisk there. I do think this opens up what could potentially, it's not enough in itself, but potentially um, a a damaging line of attack uh, against him, mainly from Trump, but really from all sides, that he's um, uh, overly overly calculating and has become um, a new kind of politician with new convictions in response to the uh, the power of Donald Trump and his appeal. So with that, let's hear from our sponsor of this episode, Donors Trust. Cancel culture doesn't just affect comedians and commentators anymore. It also affects everyday hardworking Americans. How so? It derails their charitable giving. Take Jeannie's story, for example. Jeannie did her charitable giving through one of the big national giving account providers. That is until without a clear reason, it refused to send her charitable dollars to a conservative nonprofit. She shares her story this way. I'm a conservative. I believe America is great despite her imperfections and that capitalism brings great good to society 
society rather than government. Earlier this year, I continued to see the need to support conservative organizations, so I requested another gift from my donor-advised fund, and it was rejected. That is why I moved to Donors Trust. Jeannie wanted a donor-advised fund that shares her conservative principles and found that in Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund committed to limited government personal responsibility and free enterprise. Do you worry about cancel culture getting in the way of your charitable goals? Do you simply want a principled partner helping you support causes close to your heart? If so, consider opening a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust. For more information on how Donors Trust can help you with your charitable giving, visit www.donorstrust.org/nr to receive a free copy of their donor prospectus. That's www.donorstrust.org/nr. Please check it out. So, Maddie, we've had this argument growing online and on Twitter for a while now that conservatives make a big deal of woke, but they don't know what it is. What it is, they can't define it. This week, our friend Bethany Mandel has a great book out that she co-wrote with Carol Markowitz, Stolen Youth, which everyone should check out. She was on the uh, the Rising, the Hill um, Hill's uh, live stream show, and she was asked by the progressive host to define woke. And, and Bethany had this kind of moment that, that we've all had occasionally, you know, video and TV, very sensitive to any slight pause. And Bethany paused just a little bit to gather her thoughts. I mean, she's, she's written extensively about this. She knows a lot about it. And then realized that in her pause, that was really awkward and could be used against her and paused and hesitated more and explained, oh no, this is going to go viral. And then of course it, it goes, it goes um, uh, viral. And, the, but this was, this is confirmation for the left. Oh, you know, conservatives, they, they can't um, define woke. So Maddie Kearns, putting you on the spot right <laughs> here. We had a heads up in our topics. Can you define woke? What is it? Yeah, so I would say my one-sentence definition would be woke is the state of or pursuit of progressive enlightenment. But, I mean, obviously, like, we, we know the origin of the term. It was uh, originally used as slang among the enlightened themselves to, to signify their alertness to racial prejudice or discrimination. But now we use it much more broadly than that. We, we use it to talk about progressive ideology and activism, most often social justice causes, uh, as they relate to race, gender, sexuality, identity. And it's mainly used now by critics of this ideology, which is why I think um, the, the progressive host was, was sensitive to it. And, um, and I, I do have sympathy for, for Mandel, not, not just for the, the reasons you gave, which is we've all been there uh, and we have, but also because whereas political correctness was, was just simply an oversensitivity to offending people who might have protected characteristics. I think wokeness has much deeper ideological roots and it does take quite a lot to unpack. So, you know, it's collectivist defining people by their group membership, not as individuals. It offers this anthropology of the human person based on their membership to, to one of these groups. Um, and progressives obviously believe that these groups uh, and somebody's identity in this group is based on these social hierarchies and you need to acknowledge these hierarchies and all the oppression, biases, privileges that attend them in order to be able to dismantle them and, and make society uh, fairer. So being woke is just simply affirming this worldview, accepting its premises, adopting its jargon, 
and promoting its priorities and policies? Yeah, so MBD is a classic example of everyone knows what it is. You know it when you see it, but put on the spot, you might not come up with a, a clean one sentence definition. A lot of people on Twitter who <clears throat> last week or so have been, um, you know, on the right or center right defining it go to race, right? And uh, the belief that institutional racism affects everything in our society and equality is no longer enough, so you need to have um, equity. But it's, as Maddie is pointing out, it's it's a, a broader phenomenon than, than just race. Right. And it is, um, I mean, if I were taking a stab at it, I would, you know, not just a one-sentence definition, but I would say that it is characterized by the way it borrows so much from the academy uh from from the progressive academy and their definitions of misogyny or uh, anti-racism or what equity is and it is overwhelmingly concerned with um sim symbolism inclusion and uh i don't know linguistic um coherence right that it is um you know, very little, you know, it, it is obsessed with things like microaggressions, right? Where you might get a, a, um, a boss might offer a, a comment that could be seen as a gendered insult to a, a subordinate. And this is, uh, not taken as a, you know, a, a verbal miscue or a, a thoughtless slight, but is conflated with uh, insidious and omnipresent oppression, right? That this is, uh, in fact, um, an exercise in hierarchy and dominance rather than just uh, social awkwardness. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it's, it's a way of kind of... Um, it's a way of incubating communist sentiments into postgraduate um, snowflakes, right? Like, uh, it, 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 you know, to make them kind of demand equal esteem for their identity in every social interaction. And it is, um, you know, it is, it, it leads to a kind of absurdity. Um, and it's amazing how like, uh, destructive it is of traditional left-wing politics, which was like, let's gather everyone, um, as a, a, a giant mass, either as workers or the people to demand, uh, rights in an organized fashion. Now it's like, let's, um, splinter into 10,000 identities that are microaggressed in their own special way. <laughs> um, so, so, Charlie, this is another example. Um, critical race theory is another one where they, at the one hand, they're, they're, all, they're all woke, they're all in favor of critical race theory. On the other, like, oh, you can't define this. It doesn't exist. You're tilting at windmills. This is a classic progressive move. This is perhaps the classic progressive move. Whenever progressives don't like the way that a given debate over ideas or anything else is going, they go after the words with which the debate is being conducted, even if the words in question are theirs, even if they happily use them 
explained them, promulgated them for years in the first instance. And they try to remove those words from the language or attenuate them to the point at which they're meaningless. Progressives truly believe that if you can kill a word, then you can kill the idea or the belief that that word reflects. This is, albeit in a different context, of a piece with progressive views on censorship and on public pressure. Woke has become inconvenient. It has been adopted by the other side and appended to anti. And so now it must mean nothing. Now those who are pushing back must not know what they're saying. It must be a stand-in for all manner of other words. Progressives do this all the time. You see it in the way that they pressure journalists to use euphemisms for abortion, the way that they pressure journalists to stop using phrases such as, say, gun control and use gun safety instead, as if the underlying fissures within our society will go away if you do that, as if most people are fooled, as if the physical and legislative manifestations of these ideas will cease to matter. The second I saw this, I thought, uh, well, the anti-woke side is winning. Because the moment the anti-woke or anti-whatever side starts to win, progressives make this move. It is such a tell. They can't bear the idea that the ideas that they have put out there might be unpopular, might be used against them. And so they get into this Jesuitical parsing. A good example prior to this one was defund the police. We saw the calls to defund the police for months. We saw pieces in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in the Atlantic from people saying, no, we really mean we should defund the police. We saw the police compared to slave patrols. And then the polling came out and suddenly we had this exquisite debate about what the word defund means, right. about what the word police means, in some cases about what the word the means. Well, when we said defund the police, what we really meant was, of course they're doing it with this. Wokeness has not helped them out. Wokeness has not been a net benefit for progressive ideology in the United States. So the word has to go in the hope that all of the apparatus that they've built will disappear if it does. It won't. So, Maddie Kearns, I ask the question to you. In the medium term here, woke, assuming you think it, it is now, which I assume you do, uh, woke will continue to be a useful term, yes or no? Yes, definitely. MBD. Um, can, can I venture an extra, extra thought in the exit question? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a useful term uh, in the sense because I, th- I think one thing that wokeness is disguising is that what what's really happening on the left is there's been a total crisis because of diversity um, and this is a wokeness is a bad attempt to try to um, adapt the black American tradition of political reflection and critique for a much more diverse society. 
and it's been an utter failure uh, because, in fact, like women and gays or trans people or immigrants from uh, the the Far East or India are not um, uh, subjected to anything like what the enslaved were from 1619 onward uh, and trying to, to create this large uh, left-wing force uh, that pretends that they were is, is, has been a disaster for all members of the left-wing coalition. Charlie, useful term going forward, yes or no? It will continue to be a useful term going forward because people, including laymen now, know exactly what it means. And the fact that there are some people who use it too much or who apply it opportunistically or in a profligate manner does not change that. When you have a word that is universally understood that can be connected to real debates and real legislative and academic and ideological initiatives, then that word is useful. And the fact that the left is going after it now in the way that it is only underscores that. Because if woke really were entirely irrelevant, entirely indecipherable, they wouldn't bother trying to police it. Yeah, I think it's a it's a, a, a useful term. Uh, it will at some point just everyone will get tired of it and it'll get worn out and something else will arise. And we'll know what but that for, word means too, because yeah, you know, right. as we knew what political correctness meant in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, and then uh, then the cycle will will repeat itself, and the left will say whatever this new term is. No, no one knows what it means, <laughs> and eventually we'll get another one, and, and and on it will go. But yes, it will continue to be a useful term going forward. Let me pause, do a couple quick plugs. One, for the Idea Summit rapidly approaching, the National Review Institute sponsoring down in Washington, D.C., does it once every two years. It's a great event running March 30th and 31st. Mike Pence will be there. Tom Cotton will be there. Vivek will be there. Uh, Various um, National Review writers and editors. These are always wonderful events, stimulating discussion from the stage, but also great fellowship among your uh, uh, fellow participants and the, uh, uh, the the speakers. So it's a great way to make friends uh, and network. So it's, it's just a, it's a great time all around. There'll be a whiskey tasting uh, on the, uh, the the night of the, the 30th. So you don't want to miss it. Um, and you need to sign up soon because I, I think the signups close um, the 20th. So it's rapidly approaching. You can learn more and sign up at nrinstitute.org, nrinstitute.org. And if you're not going to do that, but you want to plug deeper into NR in a different way, please consider signing up for NR Plus, our digital subscription service that does away with our, our paywall. You never have to worry about it. Again, uh, eliminates about 90% of the ads you might be seeing and, and annoying you at the moment. It's a great deal. And uh, a really important way to support our journalism. So please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR+. So Charlie, speaking of woke, we had this incident out at Stanford Law School. Judge Kyle Duncan is invited by the Federal Society to give a talk. The room is full of these uh, spoiled left-wing 
children who um, I was just listening to the the full audio a little earlier. A little hard to make it all out because there's there's so much shouting and and heckling and derisive laughter, but just really appallingly immature behavior. Unfortunately, you've come to expect that from college students and even from law school students. But uh, perhaps the most appalling part of this is uh, the associate dean for DEI is in the room. There are a number of administrators in the room, didn't say a word. uh, But when the the judge asked for help from some administrator so he can actually deliver his prepared remarks, she gets up with her own prepared remarks and repeatedly says, at least twice says, is the juice worth the squeeze? In other words, you know, why don't you just go away? Because uh, it feels like disenfranchisement, your, your views and your uh, judicial decisions, and uh, mocks the notion or questions the notion of, of free speech. Stanford has a notional policy, uh, free speech policy on campus. It was uh, defied by these um, students. And um, she she sits down. I, I think the judge tries tries to to go on, and then 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 the thing ends shortly after. And then it's it's been kind of a travesty since then. None of these students obviously are going to be punished. The dean is not going to be punished, and the, uh, the these left wing students have been acting like shock troops of the Cultural Revolution ever since, uh, mocking and, and calling out anyone who uh, invited Judge Duncan or thought their behavior was shameful or thinks free speech is important at Stanford. The part of this that I found the most grimly amusing was the surprise in some quarters that this administrator behaved as she did, when, of course, the entire purpose of her being there, the reason that she has a job, is to behave in that manner. This was not a violation of her job. This was not a departure from her job. This is her job. That's what DEI is. DEI is not about small l liberalism or inclusivity. It is not about equality. It is not about opportunity. It is not about openness. DEI is a vicious ideology that seeks to squash anyone who dissents from its tenets. Of course she had a speech prepared. Of course she attacked Stanford's free speech policy. Of course she suggested that he should pack up and go home. That's why she's employed. She co-opted those students. She was on their side. She wasn't standing between the hecklers and the speaker. She was pushing the hecklers forward. She was endorsing them. She was affirming them. DEI is hostile to academic or intellectual liberty. Its purpose is to make it impossible for anyone who dissents from the views that are held by those students to exist on a college campus in a positive and constructive way. She went after the speaker. She went after those who had invited the speaker. She went after the university's stated policies. And she did so by design. This was not a departure. 
If you invite these people into your university, into your corporation, into your charity, this is what they will do. That is why they exist. And I think this is increasingly important for people to understand. We did not see here a violation of principle. We saw the principle being enforced. And if Stanford is serious in its insistence that this was embarrassing to it and that this is not how things are supposed to work, then it will fire her. It will fire everyone else who is there under the same pretenses. And it will encourage all other institutions of higher learning to do the same. And at the same time, this Fifth Circuit judge, all Fifth Circuit judge, all circuit judges, all judges, frankly, should be keeping an eye on who is acquiescing in this attempt and declining to employ them or uh, facilitate their advancement in any way. This is antithetical to universities. It is antithetical to the law. And it's antithetical to the very ideas that the DEI people pretend they exist to uphold. So, Maddie, I mean, Charlie's absolutely right. This, this made clear what we all knew to be true, the complete symbiotic relationship between the, this kind of DEI staff at universities and woke students who uh, are, are doing everything they can to impose their totalitarian uh, impulses on everyone else. I saw something on Twitter this morning, might have been posted by Eric, Eric Kaufman, the social scientist, a research showing that the, the more DEI staff you have, the more woke students you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Charlie, and I think really if there was any other context other than inviting a, a controversial speaker to campus uh, where students behaved like this, they would be disciplined. I mean, the the sorts of things they were shouting, uh, we hate you, you suck, uh, we hope your daughters get raped, uh, was was one of the things that was shouted. That that would be a right. That's it. Like leave this university. Like this is the end of your higher education career. It'd be one thing if these students were gender studies majors, but these are law students. These are people who are supposed to be learning about reason, persuasion, civility, integrity, the law. And it just is an insight into the kind of education they're getting that they think this is acceptable. It also gives some sympathy to people like Judge James Ho, who said he wouldn't hire people from elite universities, he wouldn't hire law clerks, over precisely this sort of culture, that this is his concern. Obviously, I, I think that's unfair because I think you can have sane students who are going to be un, unfairly uh, targeted if you if you just make a blanket ban. But you can understand his point. And I think the only way around this is to bring in consequences, is to enforce the standards that universities, like I say, have in other contexts. So in the same way that we, we, we have people's disciplinary records available when they apply for for jobs you can you can call up uh 
their their university and find out have they you know been a good student i think this is the sort of thing that should be mentioned this was all caught on video this was all caught on audio these people are identifiable and the university i'm not i'm not saying they should necessarily be publicly doxxed but the university should make a note of who they are and put that on their permanent record because it's only by doing things like this that this sort of behavior will stop so mbd do you have a view on whether these these kids are going to be childish and entitled the rest of their adult lives having had this experience and uh, uh, you know ha- having no consequences or th- this kind of thing people grow out of naturally um i you know it's funny actually while you've been talking to to charlie and maddie i've been wrestling with exactly that question which is is this a behavior they're going to take into the institutions they go into and part of me thinks yes you know look at the way the new york times reacted under James Bennett, mm-hmm. um, right. where he literally was put through a struggle session the day he was fired. Um, right, he had to grovelingly apologize for harming uh, everyone in the New York Times by running an op-ed that was harmful. Um, on the other hand, you know, I do believe a lot of these people are acting this way just because the institution permits it. Right and encourages it, as Charlie says, and when they run into institutions that don't permit it, uh, if there are any left, um, they won't be able to get away with it anymore. Um, and and there are many of those institutions out there. Um, so it's just a matter of, you know, uh, what are we going to do with other institutions? Are we going to let them go this way? Are we going to let the Senate? you know, change its rules and procedures based on woke ideas and, you know, give more privileges to non-white, non-cis, hetero male uh, members, you know, that's a possibility. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have a lot of confidence in the way the United States is training its future elite um, in general. So, um you know, I, I I am worried long term that these people are, are going to come into power. Um, you know, the boomers' selfishness was like kind of limited by uh, some of the remaining values of Western civilization that they were still raised in. I'm I'm not sure uh, what the limit on the selfishness and self seeking of these Stanford law students is. Charlie Cook, exit question to you. The Stanford Law fiasco will be an inflection point in the debate over free speech on campus, yes or no? No, because the instinct that you saw on display is being ossified by the hiring of DEI administrators who are there to corral those people, encourage those people, and ensure that it continues. Matty Kearns? I'm inclined to agree with Charlie, but I do think it's at least a little encouraging that the university apologized. Mm-hmm. MBD. Um, no, it's not, it's not going to change anything. I mean, the, the people that were part of the cultural revolution in China still remain in power today. And even the victims of the cultural revolution, and some of them are still in power today. I mean, Xi Jinping himself was, was denounced in a struggle session uh, by his own mother. Um, so, yeah, it's just going to get worse. 
So I think there, to, to Maddie's point, institutions are embarrassed by this. I think Stanford Law was legitimately embarrassed by this. And I think other institutions are kind of hoping this doesn't happen to them. The thing is, that the reason why no is not an inflection point is it, that would require really grasping the nettle. And as we've discussed, punishing uh, some some students and ripping up this uh, infrastructure, administrative infrastructure that is uh, meant to, to buttress and encourage this kind of behavior. And we're not close to the point where anyone is going to do that. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been listening to Andy Irvine and Paul Brady. Do I have that right? Yes, you do have that right. Um, uh, Andy Irvine and Paul Brady are two Irish folk musicians. Their studio album, which is just called Andy Irvine and Paul Brady, uh, was recently re-released on vinyl. Um, has you know classics like Plains of Kildare and Arthur McBride, uh, The Jolly Soldier, and uh, it's just perfect music for uh, St. Patty's Day and making some soda bread and, and calling the family back home. Uh, so All right. I recommend it to everyone. So speaking of soda bread, you are making a St. Patrick's Day meal today, Maddie. Will, will soda bread be part of the equation? Actually, soda bread is not part of the uh, equation. Well, but come up here for some. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. There's, um, yeah, so my my dad's a, a Patrick and my brother is a Patrick and it's a tradition in our family, the oldest boy of the oldest boys is called Patrick. It goes back, I think, five or six generations. So St. Patrick's Day was was always something we, uh, if not celebrated, at least acknowledged in our house. Um, and so this year I'm making... Uh, a, a meal, so it's an Irish stew using Guinness. Oh, there you go. Add some go flavor, wrong. yeah, with potatoes, of course. What else? Uh, and then uh, Bailey's cheesecake with decorated with some shamrock confetti uh, for dessert. Nice. So, so we have we have family visiting. So I will report back with with how it goes down. But hopefully, awesome. so that's a, hopefully that's a pretty good, good uh, <laughs> afternoon's of effort, I, I would think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and now let's hear from I, yeah. now let's hear from the opposition. <laughs> <laughs> so, Charlie, you've been listening to the album with the Beatles. I have. And you would think at this point that I wouldn't need to sell the audience or myself on the virtues of the Beatles, the greatest band ever to exist. But with the Beatles still hits me right in the face. It starts with It Won't Be Long, which is this raucous track in the mold of She Loves You, replete with yes in the verse. And it never lets up from that point on. This was their second album. It was recorded in a hurry after the success of the first few singles and the Please Please Me album. It does not feature any of those singles. They didn't put the singles on the albums in that era. And it's a masterpiece. Uh, I've been listening to it almost nonstop for three days now because it is that good. So uh, it's, it's NCAA tournament time, which is a great time of year. I was out of my rhythm yesterday. I, I duly had downloaded the NCAA app, which is a great thing. <clears throat> uh, enables you to watch it any game, anytime, just as you're carrying it around on your phone. <clears throat> but uh, I, I did some driving yesterday to a, a speaking 
event. Uh, so I just ne- never really got it, got into it, which was, was bad because I, I missed the great Princeton, Arizona upset, but was very, very good because I missed the UVA game where they lost in crushing fashion. UVA is a, a four seed. They're playing a 13 seed Furman and were up by two points with less than 10 seconds left, inbounded the ball. Their guard, Kihei Clark, is supposed to be a ball handler and whose uh, signature play in his career will be a, a wonderful pass that, that he had to save a game uh, late in UVA's championship run. Um, he, he's trapped and panics. They have a timeout. All he has to do is call a timeout. He just could have called a timeout. Instead, he heaves a desperation pass halfway down the court right into the, uh, a Furman guy's hands who passes it to another Furman player who promptly um, sinks a three. And Furman goes up by by one with 2.2 seconds left. And that was the game. UVA, you know, the sting of this is taken um, taken away by the championship, which is no, no small thing, and it was wonderful and inspiring. But three of their last four tournament appearances, they have lost to uh, uh, seeds who are 13 or higher. I mean, it's just a, a, an amazing, besides the championship, just amazing run of futility, and I'm very glad that I missed it live yesterday. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is... Um Jim Antle's contribution to the the great symposium on the Iraq War 20 years later in the latest issue. Um, Jim is an old friend of mine, and I, he tore the bark off the tree and uh, allowed me to get even wilder in my, my contribution. Uh-oh, just uh, we need encouraging you. And uh, yeah, well, listen, I, and I, let me you give a, to your, your left or your right or whatever it is. Let me give a, let me give a shout-out, though, to... Um, <laughs> Ever since Noah Rothman was announced that he was coming to National Review, people have been approaching him and I both saying, like, when are you two going to, you know, really fight? Yeah, when are you? And uh, this morning, Noah said, hey, I read your piece, and people have been asking me, and uh, do you mind if I respond? And I said, no, let's. it's it's time for this to happen. All right, the throwdown's <laughs> so happening. Look, look, look out for Noah Rothman uh, in the next couple days. Should be good. Awesome. Maddie, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is a piece by Judge James Ho and Judge uh, Elizabeth Branch uh, talking about the exact thing we were just discussing about how there needs to be consequences for students who practice intolerance um, uh, within the, the legal profession while they're, while they're law students. It's a great piece. Charlie Cook. My piece is by Dan McLaughlin, a misleading defense of Fox in the Dominion case, in which he criticizes a piece written by Eddie Scarry at The Federalist. My favorite part of this is the nut graph, which is English in its tone. Dan writes, there are two primary problems with Scarry's argument. The first is that he's not accurately representing the state of the law. The second and more glaring problem is that he's misleading his readers about the facts of the case. (laughs) Oh, is there anything else? <laughs> what a demolition there follows. So I, I picked the entire Iraq symposium that MBD mentioned, a full and an intelligent uh, analysis of uh, the, the war um, covering every part of the conservative spectrum on that issue. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National View podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National View magazine is strictly 
prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Donor's Trust, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.